Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. Despite the fact that a lot of people saw it coming, the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade sparked a lot of reaction in New Mexico. Some gathered in front of an Albuquerque abortion clinic supporting the decision. And so do you feel like today was a successful day in your eyes? For us it is, but we'll see. We're taking a step forward, you know, and the sanity of life is very important. So... I think it's a great day. But far bigger crowds gathered in opposition to the decision. There were several large rallies in Albuquerque on Friday when this decision came down, including one at Tigüey Park in Old Town, where it was a who's who of New Mexico lawmakers. New Mexico Congresswoman Melanie Stansberry was there. Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse Oliver. And the governor. We should mention abortion remains legal in New Mexico. There was a 1969 law on the books banning abortion in the state, but it was never enforced after Roe versus Wade became the law of the land in the early 70s. Fearing that there would be a shift in the Supreme Court's ruling on Roe versus Wade, last year, Democratic lawmakers finally amassed enough votes to pass a bill repealing New Mexico's 1969 abortion ban. The state's ban on abortions is now officially off the books. Today, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham signed Senate Bill 10, which repeals a state statute making abortions illegal. Now, I wrote a longer background piece about this on KRQE.com, and I'll definitely put a link to it in the show notes for this episode. But basically, in short, the repeal means that there are no laws placing restrictions on abortion in New Mexico. While a lot of lawmakers and advocates have called the repeal effort a move to guarantee the right to an abortion in New Mexico, it's clear lawmakers are already trying to figure out what's next in terms of how the state will address the changing landscape nationally. So here's what this executive order does. Last week, the governor signed an executive order on abortion, as she said, to, quote, further protect abortion access in New Mexico. And abortion is and will continue to be legal, safe, and accessible, period. That order can be broken down into three pieces. The first, I would say, is barring state agencies and workers from using their time, their resources, money to help investigators in other states who may be looking into alleged abortion-related violations, whether those be criminal or civil cases. The second element seeks to protect health care and other professionals licensed in New Mexico. So basically, that directs the state's regulation and licensing division to come up with rules that ensure no one has their license revoked or is disciplined by New Mexico professional boards for assisting in reproductive health care services that are legal in New Mexico. Lastly, the state says it won't extradite people for any active warrants tied to crimes related to abortion. So think of people who are accused of performing reproductive health care services, 
otherwise legal in New Mexico, but are now illegal in other states, such as neighboring state Texas. But all of this might just be the start of the battle lines surrounding abortion in New Mexico. Several neighboring states like Texas and Oklahoma and Arizona are banning or severely curtailing abortion in their states. So what are some of those legal challenges that we might see here? Does this open the floodgates for civil lawsuits, criminal prosecution? depending on where you live. Dina Buchanan joins us on the podcast this week. She's an Albuquerque attorney specializing in employment and labor law, and she's here to give us some perspective on what could play out following the Supreme Court's decision. Dina, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, guys. It's always a pleasure. From a broad perspective, without really getting into particular detail, now that abortion is legal here and illegal, a felony in some cases in other states, does this sort of set up a lot of chaotic legal battles to come? Yes, uh, it could. Um, it, you know, when we first talked about this question a few days ago, it just got me thinking and I did a little bit of research and it looks like in at least one other state, there is a bill pending to make it illegal for a citizen of that state to leave the state to get an abortion. And you know, we've been hearing in the news that several big companies and organizations have been encouraging their employees, providing funding, allowing time off for them to go exercise their right to abortion in other states, you know, not theirs. And it could create all sorts of issues. You know, a, a corporation could end up getting um, fined or sued under a regime like that. Um, you know, bosses who approve the time off could get criminally charged depending on the state. It, it just, it could lead to a lot of issues uh, because there's really no clear guidance about what is okay and what's not. And, you know, there is a, a constitutional right to travel that's been approved, you know, by the Supreme Court since the 1800s. But the interesting thing about that law is that it is based on an interpretation of the Constitution and an interpretation of the Commerce Clause, much like the Roe v. Wade right to privacy was based on a, a basic right to liberty in the Constitution. So there is no actual recognized right to travel in the Constitution. And what is concerning about this opinion for me as a practitioner is taking away the um, the precedence of something like Roe v. Wade that said, oh, yes, you have a right of liberty. So you have a right to privacy. Um, you know, another line of cases that says you have a right to travel. Well, do we? Because if the Supreme Court is going to take this approach with regard to other recognized rights that we think we have, that we're making decisions and companies are making decisions based on, um, right now, there's just a massive gray area and there's just a real lack of guidance for employers, for workers, for the public in general to make these decisions about what they can and can't do. And so I don't, I'm not sure if that answers your question, because it's really a, a, how people going from state to state could be affected. But then even between the states, I think there could be issues. I read something this morning in the Albuquerque Journal that there is and already a massive influx of people coming from Texas to New Mexico, seeking abortions and seeking uh, reproductive help. And if now Arizona has resurrected its old statute that outlaws abortion, according to its attorney general. So our neighbors 
um, are going to have women that are going to be coming probably to New Mexico and using our systems. So it raises a question about whether our state may be overly burdened by citizens of other states due to the actions of other states. And so does our state have a claim against these other states? It struck me that lawmakers were consistently saying that New Mexico has, quote, guaranteed the right to an abortion by repealing the 1969 ban. But at least from the research that I was able to do in putting together a story on KRQE.com, it seems like there are no laws that are on the books specifically outlining protections toward the availability of an abortion in New Mexico. So with that in mind, I wanted to ask you, you know, if New Mexico really wants to protect abortion or guarantee, as a lot of the lawmakers suggested we, quote, already have done, do you see it as important for the state to sort of get a law on the books like Colorado did, for example, guaranteeing the right to an abortion. Today, Governor Jared Polis signing the Reproductive Health Equity Act. The act codifies a person's fundamental right to make their own reproductive health choices without government interference, particularly this relates to abortion. Yeah, the the if we really want to guarantee to the right uh, to abortion in New Mexico, we need a constitutional amendment that and that provides for a right to those services. Um, and in fact, I think that the best way to do it is to make a broad right for, you know, people to have access to reproductive health services, um, because I think it's broader than just abortion. And we're also hearing that the Supreme Court might be trying to go after contraception and things like that next um, with uh, what Justice Thomas suggested about the Griswold opinion. So I think a constitutional amendment is the safest way to give us an actual guarantee to that right. And I don't, we don't have that now. Um, The second best thing would be to have legislation that gives us a right. And then of course, you know, legislation can always be repealed. So, um, but it's better than nothing. And Um, I do think that the governor's executive order helps on some level, but it doesn't guarantee a right to abortion. It just provides protections within what the governor can do. It really does feel like that this whole talk that I've seen sort of in press releases where people saying New Mexico has guaranteed the right. It's not really a guarantee. It's a reminder that all it was was a repeal of a law. It's just a repeal of a law. And, you know, what could happen is different governmental entities within our state like local county um, municipalities could create their own ordinances. And then those are going to have to be tested because in the absence of a constitutional amendment or a preemptive legislation and, you know, within our, from our state legislature, um, you could have even town to town or county to county differences and how they approach this. I can't help but think about COVID and how that played out with, you know, local restrictions versus state restrictions. You know, we saw that with mask mandates playing out across the country, just different depending on where you were. I wanted to talk more about some of the legal challenges that might occur as a result of this. One of the things the governor mentioned in her news conference was an expectation that there would be some New Mexico sheriffs or local agencies out there that could possibly help neighboring states enforce abortion law. Her executive order on not helping with those investigations only applies to state workers. Do you foresee that happening, that local officials could still aid other states in extradition and criminal charges related to abortion? 
Absolutely. Um, the, I think the governor did what she could within her power as the executive for the state, but she doesn't have jurisdiction to control the actions of local police forces or county sheriffs. So perhaps we have a local government and a local elected official that cooperates in a way. Uh, they're not state government that I find is inconsistent with this executive order. While that's not a direct legal challenge to us, it flies in the face of what we're doing. We're going to have to think through what we would do uh, and potentially partnering with the attorney general to make sure that we are minimizing those uh, issues from occurring in the state. We've also heard, for example, the district attorney in Dallas, Texas, says he won't prosecute people criminally in his court for abortion-related crimes that may be on the state laws for Texas. So here in New Mexico, depending on where you live, you could have cases where counties and district judges potentially as well, maybe they feel differently. Do you see the potential here with all of this sort of like individual opinion mixing into whether or not they believe it is worth prosecuting? Do you potentially see states suing each other um, over this sort of what one side may argue is picking and choosing what laws get prosecuted? Yeah. And that goes to my thought earlier, which is uh, we do see a lot of people looking to travel from state to state. Um, based on the differences in the laws in another state. And one way that this could come up is if it's illegal in the person's home state, uh, and it could be lots of things could become illegal. They're looking at, uh, in some states, enacting laws that protect uh, not just the fetus, but also an embryo. And so if, if someone leaves to terminate a pregnancy and the embryo is protected, there, there is some talk that that state could then sue uh, to try to extradite the woman and the provider to that home state to um, prosecute them for murder. And then that creates an extradition battle between the two states because where this termination may have happened may be a state that has the protections like we do. And there could be battles in federal court about, you know, no, we're not extraditing. Oh, you have to extradite. And then the federal courts could end up having to resolve some of these issues. And and unfortunately, it's very burdensome on the court system to have to deal with those fights. They're very complicated and it's uh, they're disfavored usually by federal courts. And I would say along those lines, too, you know, extradition battles between states, they don't really seem to be a thing these days um, or, or not something that we hear so much about. I, I think where we normally hear extradition battles are between, you know, countries that disagree with each other's politics, like, say, between Russia and the United States. You know, that is not something that we see on a, a state to state level that it feels like this door is being opened. No, it's it's not something that I've seen. Um, I don't really do criminal law. But I think the governor's executive order was actually drafted in ways to try to address some of these things in advance. But we'll see how it plays out. I I definitely can see it happen. And in the civil world, we do fight about conflict of laws between states on a fairly regular basis. And there was a Supreme Court opinion, I think, five to seven years ago about Texas law versus New Mexico law, because New Mexico law is much more protective of its citizens uh, in a personal injury situation. And basically, our Supreme Court said, no, New Mexico law is going to apply here because in this conflict, these battles between, you know, two different kinds of civil law, 
we're going to apply New Mexico law in large part because of New Mexico public policy. So if that becomes an issue in these extradition battles, you know, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. So since the U.S. Supreme Court announced its decision, we have seen, you know, states reacting in different ways. It's become very apparent that depending on who is in office, whether they're a red or a blue state, abortion laws can be drastically different. We've talked about New Mexico being a so-called magnet now for abortion. Something critics have said this could overwhelm our own health care access if we have people coming in from out of state. I know that's been top of mind, particularly coming out of the pandemic when we were talking about the strain on our healthcare system. So just from a legal perspective, what sort of issues can arise from a potential influx of just patients here? What's going to be interesting is, are these people going to be using public services and public funding? Or is this something that is going to be privately paid? If these People coming here need public assistance. It could really burden public assistance. And that's where I think, you know, states have band together to sue opioid manufacturers because of the burden that they've placed on the state health systems and, you know, state coffers and local coffers. Um, That could potentially be an angle here. And in in terms of, you know, our, our public health system, I'm not sure that that would create other lawsuits per se, but uh, I do worry about how just as a matter of public policy and public health, do we have the bandwidth to service a lot of people? We had the same discussion during COVID when we were accepting patients from out of state. Do you anticipate maybe disputes between patients and their insurance companies over, you know, paying for services that may occur out of state? I think there's a couple layers to that. The first would be does the insurance policy have an exclusion for things that are provided by out-of-network providers or out-of-state providers? The other thing is, does the policy or are the policies going to be drafted in a way that excludes services that are not legal? Because there are a lot of ways that health insurers exclude coverage and uh, something that's not a legal practice might be the basis for denials in the future. So we'll have to see how that plays out. Because it would benefit ultimately the insurance companies to not have to pay for these procedures. Absolutely. Especially if there's, you know, travel expenses and other things that might otherwise be covered by the policy. And uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how insurance policies are now revised in the wake of this. Let's talk a little bit more about employment. You know, you mentioned off the top that some big businesses have already announced they'll pay for travel expenses for employees who need or seek an abortion, just to name a few. Companies including Starbucks, Nike, Tesla, Yelp, Airbnb, Microsoft, Netflix, Patagonia, DoorDash, PayPal, Amazon, they've all committed to paying travel expenses, and there's even more than that. But if you live in a state where abortion is now illegal, you work for a company that'll support you traveling for an abortion. Are you still legally protected? I mean, it seems like there's a difference between you have protections as a pregnant person. How does that affect someone's employment? Well, what's really interesting here is uh, discrimination laws in the way they're currently drafted. So I can see uh, women claiming that there would be gender discrimination or maybe a version of the Pregnancy Discrimination Act being implicated or religious discrimination uh, coming into play if 
say they get um, disciplined by a frontline supervisor for going to get an abortion because that supervisor doesn't agree with it. Or maybe, you know, an employee takes a position based on their religious beliefs about all of this playing out and goes to protests. And then a supervisor who's of the opposite mind um, disciplines them for speaking out. So this can play out. This has now become such a, a hot issue that people are talking about that I can see it coming into employment discrimination, employment har- harassment and uh, illegal retaliation just because of the discussions that are happening in the workplace, um, let alone whether someone actually goes to seek an abortion somewhere. So that is the more, I think, day to day practical impact that this might have in the workplace. But beyond that, with these companies supporting and helping women leave their states to go get an abortion, I do worry that some of the states that are enacting criminal sanctions against people who aid and abet abortion could apply to those companies or the people at the companies making those decisions. And that just seems like it would create, you know, massive litigation potentially on the criminal side. When you consider the dramatic shift in a precedent here, it has created a whole sea change of other precedents, essentially, when it comes to so many different legal matters, um, both criminal and civil. It's just a lot to consider. Yeah. What are the talks like in your circle? I'm just curious, Dina, like, do you have attorney friends and do you guys talk about this? Right before I got on this call, I was talking to a colleague uh, about how this opinion and the reasoning of this opinion could end up having this domino effect in so many different so-called rights that we think we have that are not actually written into the constitution. And it is really concerning as a practitioner who relies on case precedent on a regular basis. I mean, every time I submit a brief to a court of anywhere, I rely on other cases. And uh, the way this came out, I am really wondering, you know, how solid am I going to be relying on another case that was decided 20 years ago or 30 years ago, even if it was sort of the seminal case for, you know, that that issue. And what we were talking about is how this is going to impact us day to day. I mean, this really could create an instability, I think, in our what we call the jurisprudence, you know, this, the world of, of case law that we all rely on as authority. It's, it's a little overwhelming. Um, but you know, that's like on the academic level, that's what, what we're, some of us are talking about on more of a practical level. uh, I would say that a lot of the people I've seen post on Facebook or in different group chats that I'm in, uh, there's, there's a level of just surprise and kind of shock, um, and there's been a lot of criticisms of the, the reasoning sort of, I think, because of the things that I was mentioning, just the, the way this was decided, it really creates a lot of questions for just so many aspects of our lives. So I'm, I'm really hoping for some guidance and, and resolution um, from maybe Congress or from another Supreme court opinion that will help set at least, you know, what are the guide rails here? Is there anything else that we didn't ask you that you feel like is important to be looking at here? Well, not really, but I guess I can give some general um, best practices for people who are dealing with the impact of this decision and they're going in a workplace where this might be a hot topic. 
I, I would really encourage people to keep their counsel when they're at work um, about this issue and the other kind of social issues that are just really happening. I know a lot is coming at us. A lot has come at us through COVID and now with some pretty major Supreme Court opinions, both this one and then some other things that have come down the pike recently. Um, because once you start talking about your political opinions at work, it really opens doors to, you know, issues that can lead to discrimination. Um, it can create being singled out. It can also make your employees that you supervise feel singled out and targeted in an unfair way. Um, you may not really know that other people have different opinions than you do, but you have to go into the workplace with the respect and an open mind that people may have different opinions that could create massive problems in your workplace and lead to lawsuits eventually if you create, bring this discussion into the workplace. And, you know, I say that as the kind of day-to-day -day employment law practitioner, I am not saying that companies that are taking a stand as a company and company culture are doing the wrong thing. I understand that they're just doing what they think they, you know, they can to help their employees and to give comfort to a lot of people who are feeling just distraught right now. Uh, but I will say that having discussions in the workplace, if you talk about this, just be, you know, have grace and be sensitive to the fact that there's lots of different viewpoints out there because you just don't know what your condition you're creating for someone else. In a lot of aspects, the last few years have been quite politicized and can lead to some heated discussions. We get calls all the time. During COVID, we got a lot of calls in our office from people who fell on the other side of their supervisor's view on COVID restrictions and all kinds of stuff. And a lot of times those cases weren't actionable, but it led to people losing their jobs. And so I just want to remind people that, you know, there's a time and a place. If you, you know, you're having a safe discussion, have that safe discussion. And, and I never want people to feel like they can't talk about stuff that's important, but something like this, at least right now, um, there are a lot of aspects of illegal discrimination in employment that can be touched on by these discussions. So we have to be real careful with uh, who we're talking to about what and when. It is an issue right now that everybody is thinking about and, um, and thinking about where their own personal values lie. Discussions can certainly reshape and reframe the relationships you have with people and what you may not know about the person you're talking to. And at the same time, I feel like uh, there's a time and place for everyone to go out and protest and express their opinions and do what they want to do. And, you know, I think there's a lot of productive things that can happen by speaking your mind and not staying silent. So I, I don't want this to be interpreted as that. It's just a, a time and place issue and the people that you're talking to. And if you're in a workplace that is a certain way, just be careful because that can come into an employment discrimination situation. Well, Dina, thank you so much for shedding some light on this subject. It is certainly one that um, I imagine we will have many threads of news stories to come. I'm just waiting to see what happens next. Often I can predict how things are going to go. I mean, when we've talked, Gabrielle, in the past, um, I can usually say, oh, I think this might happen and that might happen. I feel like my crystal ball has kind of shattered a little bit <laughs> with this. So.
Thanks again to Dina for chatting with us today about all the legal challenges and situations that could play out across states after this decision. Now, data from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, shows that nearly 4,000 women received a legally induced abortion in New Mexico in 2019, which was the latest data available. Nearly a quarter of those were from out-of-state residents. Now, we asked the Department of Health here in New Mexico for their numbers, which do show that there is a a difference from that CDC data. The DOH has in 2019, 2,735 abortions reported. And then the latest data New Mexico Department of Health tracks is from 2020, and they show 2,739 abortions reported. So that is uh, less than the CDC's data. We're trying to figure out which one is accurate. We all know that different agencies track data differently, but we here at KRQE are keeping an eye on these vital statistics to look for any potential trends, or if we do see an influx of patients seeking abortions from outside of New Mexico, that's something we'll keep an eye on. I think one thing we should also note here is there is a potential for a lot of other legislative change. And particularly when you think of the next legislative session, it'll be 60 days starting in early 2023. Uh, The governor did say in her news conference uh, signing that executive order, she was not going to call a special session related to abortion, but there are, again, potentials for a lot of other changes. There seems to be some indication that New Mexico may try to codify abortion rights into law like Colorado did earlier this year, but there is not a lot of firm commitment one way or the other at this point that we know about. We will have another episode for you guys next week. In the meantime, feel free to reach out if you have questions, comments, concerns, story ideas. You can reach me via email at gabrielle.burkhardt at krqe.com and gburknm on social media. And I'm at chris.mckee at krqe.com through email. You can also catch me at chrismckee.tv on Twitter. We appreciate you listening.